Thank you, Megan. Well, sometimes things just line up as they should, and uh, I should probably take credit for being like, hey, we're going to end this series and start a new series going verse by verse through the book of Ruth next week, and doesn't that work out beautifully since it's Mother's Day? I had no idea that it was Mother's Day when the sermon calendar lined up this way. Um, but this is the last week of the series that we're doing, uh, that we're going through these conversations that Jesus had after his resurrection. And next week is Mother's Day. And we are kicking off a brand new series and we're going to be uh, spending four weeks in the book of Ruth. This morning, as Megan just read for us, we are in Matthew chapter 28. In the past several weeks, we've been looking at these conversations, these interactions that Jesus had with his followers after his resurrection. So far, we looked at the conversation that Jesus had on a seven-mile walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus with Cleopas and some poor unnamed disciple. How would you like that, right? 2,000 years later, you're in the heavenly Starbucks with Cleopas. Like, they're talking about you again at Safety Harbor. Why didn't you put my name in the story? I don't know. Um, but so the two disciples that Jesus walked with on Easter day, um, we talked about the conversations that he had with his disciples with and without Thomas in the room. Last week, we looked at the conversation that he had with Peter about how each of his followers must follow him uniquely as they are called. And this morning, we are going to look at what is probably the most famous, definitely the most quoted interaction that Jesus had with his disciples before his ascension. And the thing that we have said time after time as we have looked at these conversations um, and kind of dissected these interactions is that Jesus' followers, they understood him better after these interactions. The things that he said previously that were kind of confusing to them suddenly made perfect sense. The things that were amb ambiguous were now crystal clear. Um, the passage that Megan just read for us instructs the church on what we are supposed to do once Jesus is gone. And I don't think there was a single one of his followers, a single one of his disciples that was there that day that heard him say that, that was unclear about what Jesus wanted for them to do. So I'm going to pray, and then we are jumping in to Matthew 28. Father, bless us as we study your word. Use it to mold us and make us and shape us into people that resemble our Savior so that when we go out from here, we can do just what the passage that Megan just read for us tells us to do, that we can go and share your gospel, share your good news, share your grace and your love with a world that so desperately needs it, and we can point others towards you. God, bless us now, and it's in Jesus' name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. I am someone who works uh, really well with a deadline. I don't always meet the deadline, but I work well with a deadline. I like to have a deadline. Even now going back to school at 40, when I get a syllabus, the first thing that I do is I don't care about like the point of the class or the objectives, any of that nonsense. I go straight to the due dates. Okay, what is due on what day? When is the deadline? And then I go to the late policy um, to know if I miss a deadline, what's it gonna cost me? If I miss a deadline, you know, what teachers can I get away with turning something in a few days late? Which ones can I not get away with turning something in a little bit late? I want to know what the penalty is for not being on time, but I also want to know when something is expected of me. This is how I, I write sermons too. And it's weird because like, there's no one saying, hey, Andrew, I mean, 
like by 9.59 on Sunday morning. Ideally, that's the, the deadline. But so I, I create deadlines for myself during the week. Andrew, you are off track if by Tuesday afternoon, you do not have a rough outline of what's gonna be said on Sunday. And then if by Thursday afternoon, you don't have like a three or four paragraph conversational you know, summary that you could have with someone, then, then your brain isn't where it needs to be because I create these artificial deadlines for myself because that way I can check something off in my head and move on to the next step. I don't know if it's the right way to do things. It's probably adult ADD just manifesting itself in sermon prep, but whatever, it works for me. What I don't like is an unclear deadline or an open-ended assignment. Finish this whenever it works for you, never works for me. If I am asked to do something but not asked you know, to get it done by a specific time, um, good luck. You might have to hound me constantly because I need to know when the last possible moment I can get something done. And I also need to know what the consequences will be if I don't. Growing up, it would always get me in trouble. Um, and again, my mother's here as my witness. When I was given that, hey, I want you to do, you know, empty the dishes, vacuum, do this, this, and this before I get home. When are you getting home? When I get home. That was horrible for me. I cannot tell you the number of times that I heard the garage door open and immediately went to, like, you know, get vacuum marks on the floor um, to before the engine turned off, just hoping that she would buy it because. If I don't have a deadline, it's, that's just not the way that my, my brain works. I want to know when something is expected of me. And then when we are given a task, when I'm given a task, that's like, hey, I want you to do this continually. I need, to, I need to be reminded of it continually. If it's something that is expected over and over again, I need to be reminded over and over again. And I don't think that I am the only one who feels this way. I don't think anyone really likes open-ended assignments. Last weekend when we had our Southeast Conference annual meeting here, I had the opportunity to um, give a devotional to the pastors and to the, to the delegates that were gathered here for the conference. Um, and I spoke on Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents. And the three different servants in that parable were given three different sums of money and they were told that the master would collect when he returned, but they were not told when he would return. And the third servant, the one who messed up, who didn't get it right, one of the reasons that he didn't get it right is because he didn't know when the master was coming back. He didn't quite know. He didn't have it figured out when he was coming. And so because of that, he just didn't do anything. He didn't fulfill the master's command. That passage, that parable, is in Matthew chapter 25. And here's the thing about Matthew chapter 25. We think, okay, 25 and 28, that's, you know, there's a bit of a gap there. We're talking days. Matthew chapter 25 was taught during Holy Week. This is one of Jesus' final parables. He is teaching this parable to his disciples saying, hey, when I'm leaving, I'm giving you an assignment. And when I'm gone, I expect you to fulfill that assignment. And then two days later, he was arrested and crucified. And they're like, oh, he really was leaving. Okay. The parable suddenly made more sense. Not knowing when something needs to be done was not an excuse for the servant in that parable to not get it done. And the disciples then realized, okay, not knowing when Jesus is coming back, not knowing when he's going to pop up and tell us what to do next is not an excuse for not doing what he has told us to do now. So the passage 
that we are reading this morning in this passage, the disciples are on a mountaintop in Galilee and they have that parable fresh in their minds. And the passage starts off by telling us that the disciples are in Galilee. This is probably shortly with probably a day or so after the events that we talked about last week, when Peter was walking on the beach on the shore with Jesus and Jesus said, Hey, your life is not going to turn out easy. It's going to be difficult. You must follow me. And Peter looks over his shoulder and sees John and says, okay, Jesus, but what about him? What are you going to do with him? And Jesus says, what does it matter to you? What I'm going to do with him. You must follow me as I've called you. And he must follow me as I have called him. So this is that same trip to Galilee that the disciples are on before Jesus's ascension. And the passage starts off like this. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. The word that we have translated as doubted is distazo. And this word means uh, to, to hesitate or it means to waver. It's the same word that Matthew uses in, about Peter when Peter is walking on water. And when he saw the wind, he began to waver. He began to sink. Some of the disciples are looking at Jesus on this mountain. Remember, he has appeared to the 11 at least two times in the upper room. He has appeared to the seven there at the Sea of Galilee. So this is at least the third, if not the fourth time, some of these disciples are seeing Jesus. And yet we are told that there is some wavering going on. There is still some confusion going on. Once again, if I am Thomas, I am livid. How do I get the nickname doubting? Like we're told here that there are some way, we're not going to give them names. We're not going to point out who is wavering, but the actual word doubting is used for some of them. And yet poor Thomas gets the nickname of doubting Thomas. It's a rough go for my guy. I feel bad for him, but we'll, we'll move on. So we don't know if the 11 uh, disciples are the only ones that are there. We don't know if it's the actual apostles, you know, the, the disciples that were with Jesus for three years were the ones that were hesitant or wavering about worshiping, or it could be that there were others present. Uh, just a few verses before this in verse 10 of Matthew chapter 28, uh, we're told that Jesus wanted the disciples to go to Galilee specifically to get his brothers, to get his biological family to come and meet him up there in Galilee. This most likely this instruction came when Jesus was in the upper room and he said, Hey, um, it's good to see you guys again. And I'm going to see you again in a few days. I want you to travel back up North and I want you to go and tell my brothers. This is what we're told in Matthew 28, 10. Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Remember when Jesus is on the cross, he looks down and he sees John, his closest friend, the beloved disciple. And he looks up and he, and or he looks down and he sees his mother and he looks at both of them and essentially says, mom, John's going to take care of you. Now, John is your son. Now, John, because you love me, because you and I are so close, I want you to treat my mom like you would treat your own mom. And here's the crazy thing. Jesus had other family members. It wasn't a small family. The Catholic church would say that these are cousins or extended family members, but a fairly elementary reading of the Greek makes it pretty obvious that these are actual brothers, most likely the children of Mary and Joseph. But we also don't know. It's a lot of scholars believe that Joseph would have died when Jesus was, um, was younger. We talk, call Jesus the man of sorrows. He went through difficult things in the first 30 years of his life that we don't even fully 
comprehend. So maybe there's some step siblings. We don't know what it was, but we know that there is animosity between Jesus and his brothers. Um, Two of those brothers, James, not James the disciple, but rather James, the brother of Jesus, becomes a leader in the church of Jerusalem. When by the time uh, Paul is on his missionary journeys, the two vocal mouthpieces for the church of Jerusalem are James, again, not the disciple, because he was the first of the disciples executed, but James, Jesus's brother and Peter are kind of seen on an even plane for the Jerusalem church. Well, how does this happen? Another one of Jesus's brothers, Jude wrote the book of Jude. Two of Jesus's brothers have written epistles that we have in the new Testament, but evidently there was such a rift between Jesus and his brother and his brothers. And Mary sided with Jesus that when Jesus was on the cross, he looked down at his mother and said, John's going to take care of you because James, Jude, you know, I'm guessing there are other J names, Jesus, James. Wow, that my L name thing is really, I have four boys all with the same initial. I guess Mary and Joseph did the same thing. So James and Jude, um, there's a rift. And Jesus looks down at his mother and says, John's going to take care of you now because I don't know that they will. I don't know that my flesh and blood will actually take care of you the way that they should because they have not accepted who I am. There was such a rift that Jesus asks John to take care of Mary. Matthew chapter 13 claims that Jesus's brothers, sisters, and extended family questioned the source of his authority to teach and do miracles, and they rejected him. This is probably about a year-ish before his crucifixion. Jesus's own family says, we don't like you pretending to be in charge of us. And Jesus says, no, no, I am in charge of And they did not like that. And there was such a rift. And Jesus says to his disciples, listen, now that you know who I am, now that you have fully witnessed my resurrection, one of the things I want you to do for me is I want you to go to Galilee. I want you to gather my family because they need to come to terms with this. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that there was a reconciliation to Jesus, um, between Jesus and his brothers after the resurrection. Many scholars believe that this was the main reason for the trip to Galilee. Another interaction that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15 is that Jesus appeared to a large crowd of 500 plus people. And many scholars think that that event is what is happening here on this mountaintop in Galilee. Many assume that the same mountain that Jesus is gathered on here in Galilee, having this conversation with his disciples is where he gave the Sermon on the Mount at the very beginning of his ministry. But either way, the setting for this great commission that we know that we teach kids in Sunday school, it is on a mountaintop in Galilee. And it's important that it's on a mountaintop in Galilee for several reasons. First, because Galilee was appropriately named Galilee of the Gentiles. In the Jewish world, it was kind of the gateway to the rest of the world. So as Jesus is saying, I want you to go into all the world. He is at the crossroads of the rest of the world coming into their nation and saying, this is the way out. This is the way that you are to go to the rest of the world. It's called this in Matthew 4, 15, and then way back 800 years before the time of Christ in Isaiah chapter 9, um, Galilee of the Gentiles. But another reason that it's important that Jesus is here on this mountaintop is that mountaintops all throughout Matthew's gospel, Matthew emphasizes the importance of mountaintops. We see this um, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount that we just mentioned, the, the transfiguration also on a mountaintop in Galilee. And here the Great Commission takes place on a mountaintop in Galilee. 
Matthew, when he's talking about mountaintops, like you need to pay attention. This is a big event. Read carefully, pay attention. Something big is happening here. And so Matthew wants us to know something big is happening in this passage. One final note before we move on. This mountain is not the mountain. This moment is not the moment where the ascension happens. We covered uh, the passage dealing with the ascension in Acts chapter eight and Acts chapter one verses eight um, last year when we were going through our 30 week look at the book of Acts. But Luke ends and Acts begin with Jesus telling his disciples, you are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, in the uttermost parts of the world. And it's easy to assume that the Great Commission was a part of that same conversation but they are separate events at separate locations at separate times. The ascension took place at the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem. And this we know is, you know, 70 miles north. This is not where the ascension takes place. And Matthew doesn't even record the ascension for us. Luke records this in Luke and the book of Acts. Matthew rather chooses to end his gospel with the Great Commission, emphasizing Jesus's orders to his disciples. Jesus's orders to go and make disciples. So at this gathering, probably a week or so before Jesus's ascension, before his final meeting with his disciples, he has given the, a task to the church. Those who follow him, he's like, I've got a job for you to do, but before I give you the job, here's what I want you to know. Before I tell you what the task is, I want you to know how you're going to accomplish the task. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Authority in heaven means that Jesus has authority over all spiritual beings in heavenly places. I have authority over angels. I have authority over demons. I have authority over all spiritual things. And then he says that um, this authority has been given to him by the Father. All authority on earth is something that we see again plastered throughout the book of Matthew. Remember when Jesus was tempted by Satan after his 40 days in the wilderness, what did Satan say that he would give Jesus if Jesus bowed down and worshiped him? All authority on earth. And here we have Jesus three and a half years later saying, I have it, not because of anything Satan did, but rather because my father has given it to me. This theme of the kingdom and Jesus's authority has been evident in the book of Matthew ever since the wise men showed up in Bethlehem. And it continues throughout the book until Jesus says in verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. And here's what Jesus says that he is going to do with that authority. He says, therefore, again, when you see a therefore in scripture, you need to go back and read what it's there for. That's why it says therefore. So because I have been given all authority, because all authority on heaven and earth have been given to me, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. The central directive here is to create followers among every nation, which is a remarkably audacious, wide-reaching mandate. Hey, maybe there's 500 of you. Maybe there's 15 of you gathered as I'm saying this. We don't know how many people were there. But whatever it is, um, you here, you're in charge of going to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, all of it. Get to it. I expect this out of you. 
And oh, by the way, I'm not telling you when your job is done because this is a job that I want you to continue to do until I get back. This is not a one and done situation. This is a perpetual task that I am given, giving you. The rationale behind this mandate is that because Jesus holds dominion over the planet, all authority on earth, because of that rationale, Jesus says, I'm the one who has redeemed the world, so now I need you to go and reach the world. This brings back to the very beginning of scripture um, in Genesis chapter 12. Um, This brings us back to the call of Abraham when God promises Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Jesus says, all right, disciples, you know that thing that uh, Abraham was promised thousands and thousands of years ago? That hasn't quite happened yet. Yeah, it's your job to make that happen now. I am giving you that task to do that thing that my father promised Abraham all those years ago. To make people disciples means to bring them under the authority of Jesus. A disciple is basically a follower of Jesus. Jesus is their teacher. They are a student. Jesus is the master. They are his servant. Jesus is Lord and savior of their lives. And so that is the primary command here, to go and make disciples. And apparently there's somebody at my house and my phone wants me to know about it. I'm sorry. (laughs) But the word go carries significant weight here too. It is not sufficient to remain where you are, to set up a worship center, to set up a school, to set up a tent and say, hey, y'all come in. If you build it, they will come, is not the model of discipleship that we have here. Jesus says, you have to depart depart from your current location. You have to go. You have to go out to where people are. Not everybody is destined to become a foreign missionary. Not everybody is destined to go to the, the hard places to reach. But all of us are responsible for making sure that people are going there. We all have an obligation to make sure that the gospel is disseminated throughout the whole world. Some are assigned to travel physically. Others provide financial and spiritual support. But the concept is very simple. If you want to introduce people to Christ, you have to go to where they are. Go into all nations. And Jesus emphasized there are two ways that this discipleship process takes place. The first is baptism. Baptism includes sharing the gospel and leading someone to a saving faith In Christ, once a person believes in Jesus, they are baptized as a public testimony to their faith and their new identity in Christ. If that's something that you have never done, if you have never been baptized, I've got good news for you. I've had several conversations with people in the past few weeks, and we're going to have a baptism service here, um, hopefully in May. If you would like to be baptized and publicly declare your faith, partially fulfilling this great commission, um, come talk to me. We would love to include you in that. But so Jesus says, I want you to go and make disciples. Step one, baptizing them, converting them, having them submit themselves to the spiritual authority that I have in their lives. Faith and baptism are the front end of disciple making, but it doesn't end there. That's how you get started on your journey with Christ, but you don't stop there. Making disciples also includes teaching. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. This is not just teaching 
to impart information, but rather teaching for transformation. Notice that Jesus says, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, not teaching them to know, not teaching them to memorize, but rather teaching them to obey. In other words, you don't get to pick and choose which ones of Jesus' commands you want to obey. Many times we try to make Jesus a banner for our causes. But if we're going to quote Jesus for one thing, we need to quote him for all things. And so discipleship is not just bringing people to Christ, but bringing people to maturity in Christ. And that takes place through teaching. So that we, the question that we have to ask at this point is, how? How can we possibly fulfill a commission that is so great, that is so grandiose? And there's only one way. And that is through the enabling power and presence of Jesus himself. So at the end of this big task that Jesus has given all of his people, he gives us these wonderful words of assurance. He says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. When he says, I am with you always, literally the words are all the days. Every single day that you are fulfilling this task, I am with you, is what Jesus says to his disciples. This speaks of Jesus' constant presence. He is with us every day. The good days, the bad days, the I just wish I could forget about this day days. He is present in those moments. His presence is constant. He is with us always. Not only is Jesus with us at all times, but he promises to be with us to the very end of the age. So when Jesus says, here's a task I want you to do, and I want you to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it, he says, and don't worry, because I'm going to be with you every day, every step of the way. And so Jesus closes out the Great Commission with a promise of his constant and continuing presence as we fulfill this task that he has assigned to us. This is the enabling of the great commission. Jesus doesn't say, I want you to go do this in your own strength with your own strategies. He says, no, no. all power in heaven and earth are given to me. Therefore you can do this because I have the power, because I have the authority. I am assuring you that you can do this. And if you doubt for a minute that you can, I want you to realize that I'm going to be with you every step of the way. We would never dare take on such an audacious mission by ourselves, but we don't have to take it on by ourselves. Jesus doesn't just send us out. He promises to go with us. Jesus has commanded us to go and make disciples of all nations. We live in a world, we live in a nation, disciples of all nations. We should make disciples in our nation as well. We live in a world that is desperate for the hope of salvation. And the way that the world finds out about the salvation that is available to them is not by us staying here. They find out when we are willing to go. Both the first and last commandments that Jesus gives in his gospel are telling his people to go and share. Let others know what God has done for you. Jesus has all authority in heaven on earth. He has the power to snap and make sure everybody knows everything 
And yet his desire is that we would go and share our stories that point to his story. His desire is that we would go and use the things that we have struggled with and use the things that we have gone through and talk about the grace that we have experienced so that others can experience that grace as well. Even better, he has promised to go with us. What more could we want? Are we willing to go? Would you pray with me? God bless us now. God bless us by causing us to be willing to go. To share your good news and to make disciples. Father, may we be obedient to you. May we be willing to go to our friends and neighbors. May we be willing to go to those who are far from you. May may we be willing to go to those who have drifted. And to gently remind them of what their Savior has done for them. Father, bless us now as we continue to worship. Bless us as we sing. Bless us as we give. Father, thank you for the ways that you are continuing to grow and sustain and bless our church through the faithfulness of your people. Bless us, Lord, as we fellowship together. Be glorified in us as you send us out from here to go and make disciples. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.